everybody is always working at their point of challenge because the teacher's job isn't to explain everything to everybody all at once, but to give the next tiny little bit of information to help the student move ahead wherever they are. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal here is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Julie, here we are for another podcast. <laughs> What's the subject? Well, we recently did a series on special needs students, and we talked about dyslexia, dysgraphia, and ADHD. And you suggested at the end of one of these podcasts, we should do an episode on gifted and talented students. So, here we are. Well, sounds like I opened the flood gate. Right, right, exactly. Gifted and talented education. Well, all right, that was painful. (laughs) So why do you think we want to talk about this? Well, I think on one hand, there's students that our families work with, teachers or teaching parents, are working with gifted students. Is the structure and style method of teaching writing for them? We do get a lot of calls from parents of special needs students, and Honestly, I'm a little concerned that we might be getting pigeonholed into, well, IEW is the writing program for special needs students. Well, of course, it's easy to get pigeonholed when you do something that works, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you use a system in the homeschool world and the school teachers think, oh, well, that's a homeschool thing. It only works there. Whereas the odd circumstance is it was born in the schools right. in Canada And so people who see it in the schools think, oh, well, you'd have to have an everyday classroom to make that work. And then people think, oh, you know, you have to have a group. But then people with a group look at moms doing it individually with one or two kids at home, think, oh, no, you can only do that. So, of course, that's going to happen. And that's not a problem because we can point out those basic principles of teaching writing with structure and style that are applicable to all students, whether they have visual issues or whether they have auditory processing issues or whether they're just really smart and that makes them hard to teach. Right, and that's true. When I think of the families that I've had conversations with, for the most part, it might be a mom who talks about their child and they're exceptionally brilliant in certain areas and you just kind of smile and nod a little bit because I was that parent too that I was convinced I had a prodigy in certain areas and you know maybe maybe he was maybe he wasn't or maybe he was just a normal child that had certain talents. I said probably at one of the other podcasts that I did a talk at a conference where I pointed out that all families would be better families, and all parents would be better parents, and all teachers would be better teachers, and all siblings would be better siblings if everyone had a brain-injured child at home. Mm -hmm. And the good news is, you do. Right. Because all children are brain-injured. On one end is 
neurologically flawless. On the other end is comatose. Right. Everyone's somewhere in between. And that frees you up. But you could also make the other statement and say, everyone has a genius child because each child has a particular type of genius. And sometimes those are odd combinations Mm -hmm. of circumstances. Just to underscore the fact that, wow, all children are different. Oh, imagine that. If only we could (laughs) could institutionally realize that. (laughs) Right, right. So these children that are truly gifted and talented, a mother with a four-year-old who is not just reading, but writing and writing sentences, paragraphs, even short little stories at four years old. This is legitimately a gifted child. Can structure and style work for them? How about the 11-year-old who can successfully argue out of anything they don't want to do? (laughs) That's a gift as well. (laughs) It's true. It's true. So I actually did a little research on this, and I found a definition. Do you think that'd be helpful to share a definition? So the definition of a gifted and talented child would be children and youth with outstanding talent who perform or show the potential for performing at remarkably high levels of accomplishment when compared with others of their age, experience, or environment. And that's the U.S. Department of Education, 1993. 1993. So yeah, a few years ago, and there's a lot of subjectivity. A few years ago. (laughs) 1993. And there's you a realize lot of... <laughs> how much younger we were in 1993? <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, it's probably a definition that could be changed just because of the vernacular, the way people talk about it. But yes, a lot of times you get you meet people who say, "Yeah, this this child reads anything." Right. You know, this child loves to write. Mm-hmm. This child is a few years ahead of their age grade corresponding level. Mm -hmm. And so how do you maximize that? Exactly. Yes. That's my question for you today. (laughs) Well, you simply do everything you would normally do, Mm -hmm. but you realize that you can go faster. You can expect more. You also want to be sensitive to certain maybe accompanying personality quirks. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people discover that gifted students can tend to be a bit perfectionistic. Yes. And that can cause them to be frustrated. And so I think I might have fallen into the category, at least of perfectionistic. I did skip second grade, which mm. must have indicated I could do something above right. my age. But I, I know there's a lot of frustration. And so one of the ways that structure and style can help with that frustration is the same way it can help the child who needs things in the clearest, simplest way possible. And that is to break it into smaller pieces. Okay. Part of the frustration can come from being overwhelmed at not being able to do everything perfectly. Right. Okay. So you imagine the child who starts out, he has a piece of paper, and he, he's going to write his story, he's going to write his composition, and he gets three words into it and realizes he doesn't like that word. So crumple it up, throw it on the floor, get another piece of paper, get five words into it, unhappy because it's not perfect, it's not as good as it could possibly be, crumple it up pretty soon, what have you. Half an hour, 45 minutes gone by, a pile of crumpled up papers on the floor, a kid who's hating whatever's going on because there isn't a sense of 
success right. because of falling short of the perfection. So again, what we see is that the separation of complexity, start with the outline, work with the ideas, get that decided, get that set. Then it's much less likely that the child is frustrated trying to put the ideas that they're trying to hold in their mind into prose all at the same time and possibly be certain they want to spell every word correctly and not use a word that wouldn't be spelled correctly and have neat and nice handwriting and do all of that at once. And so our whole system is, okay, keyword outline. All right, now you write it up. No erasing. Don't try to be perfect. Let's be willing to cross something out and change it. Let's create a culture where that is the norm and that is the best way to reach the end goal, which is a product that the child can be happy with, proud of. So we, we describe our method. You just described it very, very quickly, but this would be the same method for the gifted student as it would for the, be, for the special needs or the, quote, normal student, whoever that child is. Keyword outline from an existing source text at or below their reading level. And if they're gifted and talented, their reading level might be higher. Much higher. Much so higher. it would be a harder source text. Sure. Their general knowledge of things may be higher. Their familiarity with vocabulary may be above the average. But the system is going to be the same. It's kind of like, you know, you've heard me say a thousand times. We teach the same thing whether a kid's in second grade or graduate school, mm-hmm. right? We walk the same pathway. Right. What differs is the speed at which we go, the reading level of the complexity, but the system works for everyone. And that's part of the, the great power. That's one of the reasons school teachers can lock onto it so well is because they, in any classroom, I mean, even if all your kids were born on the exact same day in fifth grade, right. you would still have two to three grade levels of, quote, range Mm -hmm. between the top and the bottom when it comes to reading and writing and that type of aptitude. So in a classroom, a teacher could give a similar assignment to her children that are at at level, at grade level, below grade level, and above grade level. Right. And then kind of customize that Mm -hmm. assignment, go over to the top few and say, okay, you guys probably can do this pretty easily now. So I want to give you not everybody, not everybody's ready, but you're ready for, I think, the next thing on the checklist. Okay. So you kick them up the trail one notch. Well, I have two questions for you. Yes. One is about the reading level. So how do you decide what the reading level is? What is it that makes a particular source text at a higher or lower reading level? Well, obviously, the length of sentence, okay. the familiarity with the content, and the vocabulary. So if you have a source text that someone is reading and say, I don't really understand what this means, then you have an issue with there, either the sentence complexity, the familiarity with the content, or the vocabulary. Be like me reading Heidegger, (laughs) right? Time and being. I read the first page. I have no idea what it said. Right. So it's above my reading level. Right. I'm having a problem with either... (laughs) The vocabulary, the content, or the complexity of the language itself. Okay. So how do you break that down? So that's that's where teachers will be sensitive. But as we say, it's always better to err on the side of being too simple than being too complex. So in a classroom, when you have a variety of 
aptitudes, would you use the same source text for all three levels or could you actually use different source texts if it was on the similar content? Well, generally in a classroom, you're going through phases and this would happen in a home situation as well. Mm -hmm. You would start and do one source text kind of all the way through, read it, talk about it, create an outline together. Everybody copies the outline. So as a class, you're doing this all together. So you're modeling from a source text. So that one you want to be, of course, at or preferably below the lower median of the group. Mm -hmm. Now, I will point out one interesting thing. No source text is too simple to be unusable. Right. Right? I mean, you could give me (laughs) the fox and the grape source text that we use in our grade one demonstration Mm -hmm, class, mm -hmm. and I can make a keyword outline, and then I would be free to write it out and elaborate and add anything I want. And once you get to the composition part, there's no limit on what can be done with even the simplest of source texts. So that, I think, is an important thing to keep in mind. But going back to the whole process of teaching, if you're working in a classroom or, and you have a, a month of time, you hit the new unit, you grab a source text that you believe is at or below almost everyone's reading level, you go all the way through it together, and they write it out. Okay, next one, you grab a source text, you do maybe the first half of it or so together, and then you say, okay, you guys got the hang of it now you try to finish the outline on your own, Mm -hmm. right? The teacher then can run around and help people who are kind of stuck. Or another strategy, put them in groups of two or three, let them work with a partner. That usually makes it easier to come up with the ideas, extracting the ideas from the outline. Okay. Then third or maybe fourth assignment, you hit a point where everyone's done it a few times. They really should kind of know what to do with the source text Mm -hmm. in that unit, in that model, whether it's unit three, story sequence chart, or unit four. So at that point, you could actually give different source texts to different students. Webster and the Blended Soundsight teachers, uh, and I think Janet in the schools division, talks about having the file, the file box of source Mm -hmm. text, so that once you've taught the model together, the student can go and look for a source text in a file that is appropriate to that unit. And those can be varying in terms of reading level and complexity. If you don't have a whole file box set up, you can at least have a few options and say, okay, here's this one, this one, or that one. Which one looks interesting or challenging to you? Let the kids choose. So that's important because then you get more variety in the writing. The students are working independently in making the keyword outlines to the degree they are able, the teacher, of course, is still kind of running around trying to be sure that everyone is having success and intervening by giving as much help as needed. Mm-hmm. And then you you can layer the style techniques on top of that and say, okay, you can do the next dress up. I won't tell everybody, but keep it a secret over here. you got this extra challenge. And go over the low end and say, you know, I think this dress-up checklist a little painful. Let's just cross off one or two things here. And you just worry about these three. You tell me when that's easy. So you can play that either way. The thing is, it's it's like music. And you know my background Mm -hmm. in violin. You can have a very high aptitude, gifted, talented child come in to play music. And you can also have a child who's slightly tone deaf, maybe a little uncoordinated, (laughs) you know, all sorts of Mm -hmm. possible impediments. 
you don't actually teach them differently. You teach the same things. You just do it at a different pace. And maybe you customize and personalize a little bit. And then you watch one student can go faster. And so you try to keep them challenged. That's usually the case with the gifted and talented kids. Right. They need a challenge. They need a challenge. Mm -hmm. And the way that manifests can be several fold. I mean, in the ideal circumstance, Mm -hmm. the blessed teacher or parent (laughs) has the gifted and talented child who just wants to do more and will find work (laughs) and make projects for themselves Mm -hmm. and keep themselves busy and not be a burden at all. But that isn't always the case. Right. A lot of times, those kids in a classroom will get bored, and they will exhibit the fact that they are bored Mm -hmm. with sometimes behavior that is disruptive. Mm -hmm. And so you need strategies then to keep them challenged and busy so that they aren't bored. At home, this can sometimes manifest as being very manipulative and clever in ways they can create a challenge out of something that wasn't necessarily what you wanted them to do yes, and get way off track or get into a big debate about why should I do this because I already know how, we'll do it anyway. Well, that the debate is more engaging and intellectually stimulating than the activity that they already know how to do. Have you ever felt like one of your kids actually entered into that discussion with you, I'm going to call it discussion rather than argument, to see how long they could perpetuate it to avoid then doing the actual assignment that you gave them? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's happened to me occasionally. Yeah, that's 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 when you think of creative forms of chores. Right, exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, and let me ask you a question because you touched on this, but I just it's my second question that has to do with the checklist. You're making a harder checklist for a gifted student Is that fair? Is it harder? Exactly. Yeah. If it's a challenge, then it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. If it's under-challenging, that's as inappropriate as something that is overwhelming. So the skilled coach, Mm -hmm. teacher, parent, tutor, whatever, will be sensitive to that easy plus one principle. Mm -hmm. And when it has become easy, then... You know, now it's on the teacher. Don't be lazy. Introduce the new thing. Right. Revise the checklist. Give examples. Model it, and then expect the students to come up to that level. It's actually Janet that brought this up with me because I told her that we were going to have this podcast today. This is Janet. She's our schools division director, and she mentioned that when she was teaching, she had a parent complain to her because she was creating a more rigorous checklist for her gifted and talented student, and it wasn't fair. And I think at the end of the day, Janet was able to convince this parent that all children need a challenge. Yes. And those at the high end need a challenge just as much as those at the lower end in order to help them develop character and skill. It gets back to where we started the conversation. Mm -hmm. The bottom line truth that all children are different. Yeah. And that goes head to head with the idea that education should be egalitarian. Yes. So if you take it to one extreme, you have everybody who does exactly the same thing in exactly the same way, according to the exact same schedule, to get the exact same result, and no one varies from that 
up or down, mm -hmm. right? That would be absolutely egalitarian. The opposite would be everybody is challenged at the point of need, engaged with their interest, given individual coaching, and reaches their highest potential. Right. Now, those are both extremes, and neither really exist very much because they're, you know, one would be too totalitarian for mm -hmm. anyone to believe in, and the other one would be too difficult for anyone to achieve. Right. So we're all somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. But I think we instinctively know that children are different and that different levels of challenge are appropriate. So, yes, sometimes teachers have to try and help parents kind of see past that education is a democratic, egalitarian, equal institution. I mean, if you go way back, the whole idea of homework mm -hmm. was so that people who needed more practice could get it, and the people who didn't necessarily need more practice wouldn't have to do it. But of course, that would be horribly unfair. So mm -hmm. everybody has to do all the homework. And then what happens? You end up missing the ends and hitting toward the middle. What's reasonable is something that's not too boring for the kid who gets it quickly and needs to move on, and not too overwhelming for the child who's struggling with something. Right. So it is a question of educational philosophy, ideals, and the, the painful paradox is that the better the philosophy, the more involved and engaged the teacher has to be in order to hit that ideal where everyone's working at the point of need in an appropriate way. And those vary in terms of complexity, reading level, checklist complexity, even number of assignments. Right. In Gruard, we would try to help the teachers understand that some children would finish an assignment much faster than others. So what do you do with that? Well, one approach would be, oh, you're finished. Okay, read. Right. I, I remember that mm -hmm. in school. Yep. You finish the math before everybody else, read. Yep. Finish the writing before anybody, read. Anytime you don't have something to do, read. <laughs> Which isn't, isn't terrible. Mm -hmm. It isn't terrible. But my always thought was, I could read anywhere. Why do I have to sit here? You know, <laughs> right. okay. could I just leave and go right. read? <laughs> but what if you had, say, mm -hmm. uh, in the case of a math classroom, just because it's a little more objective, mm -hmm. student who had mastered certain operations, demonstrated speed and accuracy, what if they could go on to the next challenge in terms of the complexity of the math? Right. And what if the child who needed the more repetition could get the more repetition until they had the mastery? Well, you would have a room full of kids all working at a different place in the curriculum. This is going to spin off into a topic of motivation very quickly if, if we're sure. not careful, which is, a, sure. which is a great thing to be talking about because that is very motivating. When you were first describing that, I thought, well, you're going to make me do more work? But a student who is challenged and has good character, wants to work hard. Sure. And all children are naturally industrious. Mm -hmm. Levine's book, The Myth of the Lazy Child, mm. it has a lot of very good observations in there. Mm -hmm. If you watch children, though, left on their own and without technology and entertainment, they are naturally industrious. Mm -hmm. So our job, really, as coaches and mentors and teachers and parents is to create an environment 
where that natural industry can find its fulfillment, can find its satisfaction. Businesses operate that way, yes. don't they? Yes, they do. If you bore someone in a business, they'll quit. They'll leave, go find a more interesting job. <laughs> right. If you overwhelm someone in a business, everyone pays the price. Mm-hmm. So when we work cooperatively in the real world, we're always at varying levels of quantity and quality and type mm-hmm. of tasks. So, yes, yeah, so the math world, you know, that would be the opposite of, okay, everybody, we're on you know, lesson 22, please turn to lesson 22. Now, don't look at lesson 23 before we all get there because then, well, why? Right. Why not? Right. I I was always the one that wanted Mm -hmm. to, you Mm -hmm. know, work for five or seven or 10 (laughs) lessons ahead. Yep. But the teacher then has the problem of, now everybody turns to lesson 23. I did that already. Right. Now what? Mm -hmm. Okay. So now take a look at the Kumon classroom, Mm. right? The way it's structured and I'm not making an advertisement for Kumon. I'm just mm-hmm. saying what happens is kid comes in, shows work to the teacher, teacher checks the speed and accuracy, assigns more work based on the speed and accuracy to a particular level, and they only go up level when they have mastery, and everybody does something there, the teacher checks it over, gives packets to take home, everybody works at home, everybody is always working at their point of challenge because the teacher's job isn't to explain everything to everybody all at once, but to give the next tiny little bit of information Mm -hmm. to help the student move ahead wherever they are. So incremental learning. Incremental learning. And of course, in a Kumon room, you don't even think about the age because you could have a hotshot nine-year-old working in level E, and you could have a 14-year-old just starting at level A. And that would be completely okay in that environment. Right. And you talk more about this in your mastery learning talk. Mastery learning. So now cross-apply that to writing. What if someone finishes an assignment? What would be the problem with, hey, there's the file box. Right. Go get yourself another source text, make another outline, and do another assignment. Exactly. And if they have a character issue, they're going to grumble and complain. But if you're one of my children, you would be able to recite with me hard work (laughs) <laughs> is immensely satisfying. And I just heard all three of my boys say that with me just now. And I hope to teach that to my grandchildren as well. Well, I hope you do too. And <laughs> unfortunately, that isn't necessarily the opinion of all students that teachers will run into. But I do think that it can be handled. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that idea of, well, how come I have to do more than him? Right. You know, I finished. How come I have to do another one? I think you can get over that through motivational techniques. Now, Mrs. Ingham and Dr. Webster used to have, and, and I have to tell you, this is not modern, progressive, egalitarian style of education. This is rural Canada, early in, to mid-1900s, where there was the idea of competition right. was still acceptable. In a, in a school. Mm-hmm. So some people may think, well, this this isn't healthy. I don't, I'm not going to agree or disagree, but I'll just tell you what they did to motivate. On the reading side, Mrs. Ingham had the reading stairway. And so every time a child would read five little books, his little figurine would go up the stairway. And all the class was at a different place on their little stairway, and all the children knew where they were, and they knew that if they wanted to get up to the next step, they had to read five more books. And so this motivated children. 
And it wasn't who gets to the stairway first wins. It's everyone should get to the top. Right. Right? And there was a big deal that she made about celebrating their accomplishments. Yes, absolutely. And it's not a race to the top. Mm -mm. It's just a journey we're all on. It's the pathway. Mm -hmm. And if you and I and Michael and Maria here went out to climb a mountain, Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure who would get there last? (laughs) Me. I don't know about that. (laughs) But if we all got to the top, that would be okay. Mm -hmm. Just because Maria would get there first Mm -hmm. doesn't really matter. (laughs) Same thing. What about writing? Well, Webster had not a little stairway. He actually liked a space theme. Right. So I don't know. I think it was grade five or whatever. He would have the solar system, right? And people would, would start on Earth, and then they would go out toward the planets with the goal, I think, to get to Pluto, which once was a planet, and you had to write a certain number of compositions to get to the next planet. And so students could be on different planets. And (laughs) and so, yeah, well, hey, could I write another one? Sure, I've got time. Yeah, let's grab a story. Let's make a keyword outline. Let's write another composition. Here's the checklist. Everything's getting easier. Everything's getting better. Teacher's happy. And boom, I'm one point closer to getting out to Jupiter or whatever. So... You know, I I think that motivational method, as long as it doesn't become a competition so much as it becomes a pathway that we are all on, and it's okay for everyone to be at a different place, then that gives both the kid who struggles a sense of progress, and it gives that gifted and talented kid a way to see that, you know, they really are moving along, making progress. The work is paying off. It's good. It's that external representation yep. of the internal growth that's growth. happening. Yep. Yep. And we all need that, don't yep. we? Exactly. Yeah. And I, I just want to end maybe with a little sales pitch. Maybe it's just about who we really are. You're the marketing director. You're guess, supposed to make a I sales guess, pitch. I guess so. We're, <laughs> we focus on teacher training. And that teacher training course that we have teaches teachers to teach students how to write that's the core and so once you learn the method you can adjust it to any level the other thing that we do offer is our theme-based books and a lot of those have advanced lessons Mm -hmm. for the gifted and talented students same with our schools division materials right there's materials built in to be able to do the file box source text that we offer specifically in the schools division to be able to help Teachers navigate the waters of gifted and talented education. And teachers can write to Janet at schools at IEW.com. Parents can write to info at IEW.com. And Mm -hmm. uh, any question about what materials would fit particular types of kids or particular classroom situations, I think we're well equipped to help people understand what we do have that will help them be the most successful as possible. And that's our goal. That is our goal. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudois and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.